Well, good evening. It's really great to see you guys be here with you tonight. Let me begin with a couple of a uh, couple of uh, just things kind of on my heart uh, to say to you. And number one is just a massive thank you. Just want to express gratitude for any of you, all of you who are uh, financially supporting our church. As we say this often, but I'll just remind you, there are five ways uh, to give financially, and you can see them right there in person in the mail on the app. You can text to give. Uh, by the way, if you do text to give, make sure you include the one. SHPC1. If you don't give the one, you give money to another church, uh, so don't do that. Uh, and then online is another way to give as well. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your financial support. Uh, this year has been a bit of a struggle for us uh, at times financially, and we just want to say thank you for for giving and, and supporting our ministry. The second thing, just to kind of begin with today, this is just kind of for fun, uh, just to let you know from my heart to you, I am having, listen, I'm having a great, great day. I'm having a fantastic, amazing day. One reason why is because I officiated a wedding today. It was my 289th wedding to officiate in my uh, pastoral career. And by the way, 290 is sitting right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, just a couple weeks away. Anyway, anyway, uh, but three things happened in this wedding that have never happened in 289 weddings. Three things that never happened. This, this is amazing. Number one is what happened. At the rehearsal, the, the ring bearer said, he's just 10 years old, and he says, yeah, you know, I have lost a wedding ring before. <laughs> that's never happened. Never heard that before. And he told me the story, and I couldn't believe he got the second gig. Anyway, uh, he did. He lost it on the beach. In the sand, lost a wedding ring. Fantastic. Number two, the bride and groom, Sarah and Josh, in the picture with me, you're about to see, not only do they love their dog, not only were both of their dogs in the wedding ceremony, both of their dogs were dressed as a bride and a groom. I've never had it happen. It was such a blast, that wedding. And the last thing that happened that never happened before, he was uh, sweating on his forehead. And I uh, took, a, took a tissue from my pocket and I wiped his head like a surgeon. You know what I mean? Like he's operating and I'm like, hold on, everyone. And I just dabbed the sweat off his forehead. Never done it before. Anyway, I'm having a great day. Listen to me. I'm having a great day. Don't ruin it, okay, people? But by like falling asleep or not paying attention or whatever you might do, I need you to keep this great day going. Hey, by the way, we are talking about Father's Day, and I do want to give you a couple of facts about Father's Day as we begin. Before I give you any facts, when I said that, when I said those two words, Father's Day, some of you might have kind of set up like, okay, good. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a father, and it's my day tomorrow, and I want to hear about it. I want to be celebrated. I want to have a sermon addressing fatherhood, and maybe you set up and you felt good about that, and if you did, awesome. But maybe you thought, just for a second, maybe you thought this, well, this doesn't apply to me, but actually, it does apply. In anyone who is a father or whoever wants to be a father, this sermon will apply to you, number one. Number two, if you're a mom... Everything I say will also apply to you. Just put the word mother uh, instead of father, o almost everything I'm going to say. And then last of all, every verse I'm going to use in this sermon is directly addressing all Christians. So we're going to look at actually these ideas from this sermon about Father's Day. We're going to look at it on two levels. How would this, how this affect parents or especially fathers? But second of all, how do these verses affect every person? who is endeavoring to follow Jesus. And last of all, maybe you would say, maybe you'd say, you know, actually, Pastor Tom, uh, if faith is a great big ocean, I'm just dipping in my toe. I'm not sure what I believe, or I'm just kind of checking out. Still for you, this will apply. You get to have a front row seat to see what, what the word of God is calling people of faith to be like. And so it applies, it applies to everyone, but especially 
Fathers on Father's Day. Hey, a couple facts about Father's Day. Maybe you're wondering about this amazing holiday. It's like Christmas, Father's Day, top two holidays. Uh, just kidding about that. But uh, amazing holiday, Father's Day. Here's some facts. Could be called fun facts, but they're not very fun. Uh, first fact about Father's Day. Father's Day was established as a national holiday in 1972. Only 64 years after Mother's Day was established as a national holiday. You should have laughed on that line. It's okay. I'm going to keep going. Fact number two. Only, this is shocking to me, honestly shocking. Only 72% of Americans plan to celebrate or acknowledge Father's Day. Huh. How about Mother's Day? Oh, 87% of Americans acknowledge and celebrate Mother's Day. And then last fun fact, not very fun. Last year, and this is actually good, last year's spending for Father's Day was about $12.7 billion. Only $9 billion less than was spent on Mother's Day. How fantastic. Father's Day. So let's talk about Father's Day for, for a minute. It was uh, July 17th. Nope, sorry, July 16th, 1998. My wife went into labor and we drove to the hospital. Her water broke. We drove to the hospital. That's right, Licking Memorial Hospital. We drove down. We got comfortably in our room and then the labor started. 24 hours later, we were still in the same room. Words had been spoken. <laughs> Things had been said. Uh, my wife was experiencing what's called back labor, where the, where the child is, uh, their, their feet are like into your back, and it's very painful. After 24 hours, the doctors came in and they said, um, We need to consider a C section. She's, the water's been broken for 24 hours. This is getting dangerous for the baby, and we need to think about a C section. Six hours later, after 30 hours of excruciating back labor, they took my wife and rolled her in for surgery. They gave her three times the medication a normal human would have to put her to sleep. She's a little hyped up. Uh, and then she, she was uh, under anesthesia, and, they, and, and I watched it. I watched the surgery, they took, and they took out my daughter just like that. And she starts screaming. My daughter Elizabeth starts screaming. She's just crying. And then my wife says, hey, baby. And she heard her mom's voice, and she stopped crying, and she turned her head just like that. This is a picture of me that just like moments after I became a father, warning, I am 12 years old in this picture. Just kidding. There I am. There I am right there. Just moments after I just became a father, uh, I actually, they, they did this thing called an APGAR test. They test the, the, the baby's like uh, reflexes and skills and whatever. And I was like, well, how'd she score? I was so nervous. I'm like, how'd she score? And the nurse said, she scored perfectly. And I said, do you mean she's a genius? She's been like alive 10 minutes. And she's like, no, sir, just means she's healthy. <laughs> and I was like, great. Fa father, I, I became a father in that moment. And I remember, I remember the, all the emotions and all the feelings. It's, it's kind of a big thing, big thing to be a parent, a big thing to suddenly feel the weight of fatherhood in, in your life. And, and really, let's, let's start with this question. Hey, what is, what is the state of fatherhood in America? Do we feel good about how fathers are doing in our nation, in our country? What's the state of fatherhood? By the way, did you, did you know this? In 2015, a couple of years ago, the federal government declared a fatherless epidemic, noting that 20 million children, actually more children, do not live with their biological father than do in America. 20 million children in America were living in a fatherless home. They went on to, to say this, study after study has shown fatherlessness affects physical and mental health, education, achievement, and many other developmental elements of life. Even, I, I think, honestly, I think this is incredibly alarming 
The, the United States federal government then went on an initiative, not, not churches, not, not those following Christ, not those who should have been doing it, but the federal government went on a mission to educate men that they should be fathers. And they spent billions of dollars. They made commercials like this one. Much too much. We got the spirit. We're hot. We can't be stopped. We got the spirit. We're hot. We can't be stopped. We're going to beat them and bust them. The smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call okay, now. Or visit fatherhood.gov to learn more. But this is, this is an, what I'm telling you is an incredible thing. The government made a website to tell fathers to be dads. And they had a slogan. They said, don't forget to be a father today. This is an amazing thing to, to think that the government would say, wow, we've got a problem. Let's make a website. Let's hire Tom Selleck. Never a bad move, probably, to hire Tom Selleck. Uh, but, they, but they went on this campaign. And I would just say to you, I think it's time for us to look at and say, hey, fathers, men, it's time to re-examine what it means to be an example of fatherhood in America. So I'm going to give you four things today. Four ideas. They apply to everyone, fathers, mothers, all believers. But four things that I think can help us reestablish to say, wow, we don't want to be good dads. We want to be great fathers. And, and the, really what I mean there is, is not necessarily, in a, yes, A, in a biological sense of father to their children, but also stepdads. Hey, stepdads, if you're a stepdad, you can be a great stepdad. Or I know a lot of grandfathers who are raising children. They're raising their grandchildren. I'm talking about you, grandfathers. I'm talking about moms, stepmoms, grandmothers raising kids. All of us can say, you know what? How might the Bible instruct us in such a way that we can be great at being fathers and mothers and grandfathers and stepfathers and, and even, even like adopted fathers, adopted fathers, formally adopted or unformally adopted. One year on Father's Day, I got 10 Father's Day cards from 10 different people. I only have three kids. So a whole lot of people who said to me, you're kind of like a dad to me, and I want to give you a Father's Day card, and I so appreciate it. Let's raise the bar on what it means to think of ourselves as fathers, grandfathers, mothers, all of us in the same. Well, let's begin with this. This is the verse that Brad was talking about that he didn't uh, hear me say, or maybe I misquoted. And it's an idea, really, that I want to I talk about and then massage into understanding what it's saying. This is the author of Hebrews, and he says the same thing in two different ways, and I think it's fascinating. Look what he says. Hebrews 3.1. He's building his case through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, here's chapter 3. He says, therefore, based on what I already said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, holy, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix, say the word fix if you don't mind, fix, interesting word, fix, fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the, that's the, the, the NIV translation. Uh, the, the ESV says, consider Jesus, which is nice, consider Jesus, but I like this a lot better. There's a lot more active sentence, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And I want you to imagine how your life would look if you, if you took this verse, he said, you know what, whatever I'm doing, I'm driving, I'm working, I'm parenting, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to take a second every now and then and just stop and fix, focus my thoughts on Jesus. Now, some of you, as you hear that, you're thinking about another much more famous verse in Hebrews chapter 12, which says this. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews is weaving in consistently through the book the idea that we should be above all else focusing Focusing our minds, focusing our thoughts, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does it mean? The Greek word here is, is this word. It's uh, pronounced uh, afurao. Afurao is the Greek word. It means to focus, 
to turn the eyes away from other things and focus or fix them on something. This is really, the the Greek word here actually really matches our English word for focus, that we are called to be people of focus. Who would say, raise your hand if you agree with me. I would say this, I'll stand on it. I believe it. If you agree, raise your hand. We live in the most distracted age in the history of the world. Do you agree with that? Well, everyone agrees. Thank you all for raising your hands. Right. Te- technology, love it. I love technology. I'm a big fan. But te- technological distraction could well be the marker of our age. There are things distracting us constantly. But the author of Hebrews, he says this thing. He says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Focus Turn your eyes away from all the distracting things and focus specifically on Jesus Christ. Now let's talk about this just a little, just, just go a little, little, little deeper. And I want to use this phrase, focused attention. Think, think about it. Focused attention. I'll say focused, you say attention. Here we go. Focused, focused attention. It's, it's fixing my eyes, fixing my thoughts means I am letting myself, I'm allowing myself to fully focus on something. And the Bible says with clarity, it should be Jesus Christ. I want, to, I want to go two levels here. For all of us who follow Christ, this verse should, should really help us to reevaluate. I need to, I need to focus my thoughts on Jesus. More often than not, I need to be refocusing, recalibrating by thinking about Jesus. But secondly, there is power. I'll say it, see if you agree. There's power in focused attention. Giving someone Focused attention is a powerful thing. Let me say it. Fill in number one, just like this. Fill in these blanks, Spring Hills app or the note sheet you grabbed in the way in. Here's number one. Focused attention communicates love and allows us to learn. That's what I believe about, about focusing your attention. If you do it on Jesus, like the verse says, it says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I love you. Let me tell you how I love you. You've already said it. Uh, You'll see my love as I obey you. But second of all, when I consistently refocus my attention on you, Jesus, It shows you that I love you. And second of all, focused attention allows us to learn. Just think about that. Think about maybe in a learning environment, whether it's school or a college classroom or or just your time with God. When you focus your attention, you're able to learn. When you're distracted, learning doesn't happen very well. Now, Now, fathers, listen to me. Mothers, fathers, fathers especially. Dads, you possess a gift, which is your focused attention on your children. Benevolent, focused attention tells them that you love them and allows you to learn about them. Think about what this means. Just give them your attention. You know, back, back in the day when my kids were younger, my three girls, Granville Christian Academy would host right here in this room uh, what was called the Father-Daughter Dance. Father-Daughter Dance was a huge deal in my family, and my life. And one year, my, my youngest daughter was the only daughter attending. Uh, I do prefer one daughter at a time when they're all three there. It's a little rough on the dance. And, and my daughter was upstairs. Here's how she looked in that. And those days, there she was right there. And my daughter looked in the mirror and she said to my wife, I'm going to try not to get emotional. She said to my wife, she said, she said, when my daddy sees me looking like this, his eyes will sparkle. And my wife came downstairs. She said, buddy, your eyes better sparkle. And then my daughter took the slowest walk down the stairs, like, look at me, daddy, here I am. And I recognized it. Hey, dads, are you listening? My focused attention. When I I have that look in my eye, like I'm delighting in you, it means I love you. And she walked down the stairs and there she was. And we did our dance routine. Oh, there we are, right there. 
We went down to, we had dinner at, at Elements downtown. My brother-in-law was the manager there then. He had a special table just for us by the window, flowers, candles. And we walk in and we sat down and I just focused all my attention on her. Focused attention means love. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Fix your thoughts on him. But if you're a dad, you're a mom, you're a grandparent, you're raising a child, you're, you're investing in someone, give them your focused attention. Benevolent, focused attention means I love you. Who agrees with what I'm saying? Do you agree with what I'm saying? It's a reminder. Give your focused attention. I know you're busy, but that's one of the most important things you can do. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Give your focused attention to your children and those that matter to you. How about this verse? Number two, point number two of four for Father's Day. Number two. This is the author of Hebrews again. This is verse 10, chapter 10. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's not quoting one verse. He's quoting three verses, and he kind of constructs them together, maybe a little bit awkwardly, and he says this. He quotes God as saying, but my righteous one will live by faith. And then he has God saying, and I take no pleasure in the one who, key phrase, shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We do not belong to those who shrink back. Now think about that just for a second. What might it mean in your life to shrink back? I'll give you some ideas. Fatherhood, motherhood, parents with children, raising them. Here's what shrinking back means. It means this. Here's some other words. It means zoning out. It means tuning out. Shrinking back means going quiet in a tense situation. When things aren't going well, you just get quiet. You pull back. uh, Psychologist John Gottman calls it stonewalling. He says, men are much more prone than women to recognize the emotion in the room and go silent and become like a stone wall. I will say nothing. You're getting nothing out of me. And then the biggest phrase for shrinking back is this phrase, shut down. Right now, fathers, you listen to me, fathers, right now, you need to recognize your potential to shut down in a highly emotional environment. Let me tell you about a highly emotional environment. It was my house, it was a highly emotional environment. I had a wonderful wife, she's amazing and three teenage daughters all under the same roof. And here it is. Lean in and laugh. They all wore the same shoe size. Oh, yeah. All same shoe size. Open war on closets were happening in my house. And it was emotional. It was emotional like landmine right there. And there was a tendency, a, a temptation. Hey, just shrink back. Hey, hey, don't take control. Hey, don't, don't exert uh, any kind of like benevolent, fatherly understanding of what's happening. Don't grab control. Just shrink back. Just just back away. No, that is a temptation, listen, that you cannot fall to. Do not shrink back. Now let's go, let's go broad with it. If you're following Christ and you're and you're proud of it, I'm proudly following Jesus Christ. Humbly, just raise your hand right now. Yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm proudly following Jesus Christ. You cannot shrink back. For any element in your life, spiritually, any place in your life, you cannot shrink back. Back. These days we live in call us to stand up in the right way, understanding, knowledgeably understanding. I will not shrink back from the challenge of spiritual growth. I will not shrink back from the challenge of finding a way creatively to share my faith. I will not shrink back. Hey, how about this verse going along with shrinking back? Hebrews 6.11. We want each of you, this is everyone. It's not men or women or dads or moms. This is everyone who's following Christ is being spoken to in this verse. We want each of you to show diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Verse 12, we do not want you, this is so specific, right? We do not want you, the NIV says, to become lazy. We do not want you to become 
easy. That's the NIV. The, the ESV uh, says sluggish. We do not want you to become sluggish. Or, the, or the, the NLT says, we do not want you to become indifferent. This word, actually, this Greek word, uh, nethrozo, is the Greek word. It only actually happens only, only two times in the whole Bible and both times from the book of Hebrews. It's the same word. Becoming sluggish, becoming lazy. It's like you're unengaged. You don't care. You no longer really care what's, what's happening. You know, this is a real temptation for, for men out there who are standing in the gap as fathers to say, stop. Do not become a lazy father. Don't become a lazy mother, grandfather, grandmother. Don't become a lazy follower of Christ. Look, look, look again, it's such an important, such an important, amazingly important idea. It's a question for you. Think about it. What does it mean to become lazy and shrink back in your life? To, to you personally? What's it, what's it mean? Do you, do you feel that? Do you feel that, 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 that like tendency to like shrink back and not rise up or, or just kind of let yourself slide or coast a little bit? That's what he's saying. Don't do it. Don't shrink back and don't allow yourself to become lazy in how you're pursuing Christ with your life. Now, I'm very aware that some of you right now, I, I know many of you in this room, and I'll tell you this about you. You are not lazy. There are many people in this room. You are not lazy. You would never dream of shrinking back. And to you, I say, well done and congratulations. But if you feel it when I say it, don't become lazy. That might just be a wake-up call for you to say, you know what? There's something here to address in my life. I really like the way this is Richard, Richard Blackberry. Um, he says it, says it like this, and this is a devotional called The Inspired Leader. Somebody gave me this for Christmas, a Christmas devotional. And I was like, oh, it's nice, Christmas devotional. And I came across this devotional, and this one stung a little bit. Here's what it said. Clark Kent, think Superman. Clark Kent was famously mild manner at work, but he would transform into a superhero when off duty. Unfortunately, the opposite is true for many in America today. At work, we accomplish seemingly superhuman feats, overcome every challenge, build winning teams, solve every problem. When we return home, we morph into Clark Kent, tired, distracted, and disinterested in building a team or addressing any problems. You know, probably the reality is, is that you're not lazy everywhere. You're selectively choosing, where will I engage and work hard? And where can I let myself coast and relax and be lazy? Do not coast. Do not shrink back. Do not become lazy with your faith or as a father in your life. This is the, the opposite side of, uh, of this is, what about, what, what if a dad doesn't do that? What if a dad doesn't shrink back and a dad stands up and he says, you know what? I'm going to endeavor to be not just a good dad. I'm going to do my best to be a great dad. Well, what does that do? This is Barna Research. Barna Research says some amazing things about the father's influence in the home. It also says great things about a mom's influence in the home. But here's what's about fathers. Listen to this, fathers, listen. If a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, Barna says, only one in 50 children will become a regular worship worshiper in adulthood. One in 50. If a father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church actively as adults. What a dad does in the home communicates. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. Don't you look at that and look backwards and feel guilty. This is not about you feeling bad. This is about you looking forward to say, you know what? The future is bright. I have hope. Things can change if they haven't gone well. 
How about this one? This is this is amazing, Barna statistic. This is about if a who who in a family accepts Christ first. Look what it says. If a child is the first person in the household to become a Christian, there's a 3.5% probability that everyone else in the household will follow Christ. Pretty small likelihood. You've seen that. I've seen that. You've seen that. A kid comes to VBS, like we had 65 of them, 68 of them, I think, accepted Christ this week somewhere in that neighborhood, that number. Let's give a hand for that, right? 60, 68 kids accepting Christ, right? Now, some of them are the only Christian in their home. They're, you know, they're like 10 years old. They're the only Christian. It's not, it's not very likely their entire family is going to come to Christ. So only 3.5% probability. What about, what if it's the mom? What if the mom accepts Christ first? Here's the stat. If the mother is the first one to become a Christian, there's a 17% probability that everyone else in the home will follow. That's a huge jump from 3.5% to 70%. But you know it. You know the families and moms dragging the kids to church and dads at home and you know whatever. What if the dad is? What if it's the dad? However, when the father is first, there's a 93% probability, that should blow your mind, that everyone else in the household will follow Christ. Hey dad, your influence matters. Your influence matters. Absolutely. Hey, let's look at this verse again. Hebrews 6. We want each of you to show, here's the word, diligence. Show diligence. Why? Here's the next word coming in the verse. Because of hope. Think about right now. Think about what you might hope for for your family. A future in the future. Look out there in the future. What do you hope for? What do you want to see? What, what, are, you, what are you looking for God to do in your family? Here's the verse again. We want each of you to show diligence to the very end. So what will you hope for? Maybe fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy. Here's your second fill-in. To accomplish our hopes and dreams, we need to give consistent energy and effort, pressing into Christ and our roles of responsibility. Roles of responsibility means wherever you are. You're, You're a child in the family. You're the mom. You're the dad. You're the grandpa raising children. You're the stepdad coming in. Wherever you might be, roles of responsibility, it demands energy, it demands effort to see your hopes and dreams come to fruition. Let's keep going. This next one, I love it. I love this one. We're gonna get a little more. We're getting a little a little more, uh, a little, little up higher on the scale of what we're expecting from dads. And here it is right here, Hebrews 5.12. In fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. This is a pretty pretty harsh verse, but what it means is every Christian, this is for every Christian, it's not to men or women or moms or dads, it's to every Christian It's saying this, every believer in Christ at some level is expected to be a teacher in some way. Think about that. You, if you're in Christ, You are expected at some level to be a teacher. Somewhere, God has a position for you where you may find yourself as a teacher. And the number one place you're gonna see is in your own home. You are to be a teacher. Dads, I'm talking to you. It's Father's Day. You should see yourself as a teacher, right? Moms, you're also a teacher. All of us are seeing ourselves as teachers. Here's the fill-in, number three. Fathers are called to be teachers. This is for all of us, second part. Great teachers lead by example, and understand they also must be students. So let's talk about that. Teachers. I want you to evaluate, evaluate yourself that way. And you might say this, I don't know. I don't know enough to teach. What, what, could I, what could I possibly teach? I don't know enough. You know what? That means it's time to become a student so that you can become a teacher at some level because you're called to. 
You're called to become a teacher. You ought to be teaching, it says in that, in that verse in Hebrews. But two things about a teacher. Number one, teachers teach by their example. Whoever had this happen, raise your hand. You were in school or Sunday school or someplace in the educational environment, and what your teacher said and what they did did not go together, and that teacher lost credibility in your eyes. Anybody? Anybody have that happen, right? Now, this is a story I read this week. It's about a grandfather. A grandfather and his, his oldest daughter uh, is going to have a baby. And about a, a, about a month before the baby's born, the dad splits. The dad's like, I can't handle this. I can't do it. I'm out of here. Uh, it's a high-risk pregnancy, and he couldn't take the stress, and he didn't man up. He, didn't, he, he shrunk back. He didn't step up, and he left his wife. Just left. Didn't tell her where he's going. Didn't get a divorce. Just split. Gone. And so there, here's, a, here's a woman, she's about to have birth, and here's her dad. And her dad says, you know what, I'm going to step in, I'm going to do my best to give you what you need. Next chapter in the story, the baby is born uh, about 10 weeks early, and the baby weighs less than two pounds. And she's in an incubator in the hospital, and the grandpa comes to see her, and the nurse says to him, what this, this grandpa says, the nurse gave me the best advice I can possibly imagine. She said to him, I want you every day, wash your hands really well, and you just speak to the baby and just touch every part of the baby. Because this newborn baby needs to understand that your touch matches your voice. Your touch matches your voice. Now, the grandfather I'm talking about is a, is a, a leadership guru. His name is Max Dupree. And he had written already about 10 leadership books. He's well-known worldwide for leadership. And he said, that nurse actually gave me the best leadership advice I can, I can imagine. Your voice, what you say, has to match your touch, what you do. Your voice and your touch have to match up. Your words and your actions have to be the same because you lead by example. Dads, I'm laying it out there for you. Whether you want to or not, you're an example. How you live, you are an example. You, you, your words need to match your actions. And if it hasn't in the past, it's okay. Let it go. Let that go. Drop the past. Be forgiven by God and go forward triumphantly with this vision. My voice must match my touch. My words and my actions have to line up. And the last thing I said there was to be a good teacher, you have to be a student. This is something I believe with all my heart. If, I, if I'm up here endeavoring to teach you, I better have been a student all week long to stand up and be a teacher. First you're a student, then you're a teacher. As a pastor and author, uh, I heard him speaking on a, on a podcast. And he said something, and I, I didn't love the podcast, to tell you the truth. I wasn't, wasn't a big fan of what he was saying. But he said something that, that I kind of, I, I was like, wow, that's interesting. This is a couple years ago. And he's talking about his kids. He has six children. And this is, this is Craig Rochelle, and this is what he said. He said, six kids, all six of them are different and need something different from me. I had to become a student of my children to learn how to connect with them and speak their language. This is very true. If you want to be a great teacher to your children, first, you should become their student and understand what's motivating them, what are their fears, what are they thinking, where are they. When I become their student, then I can become a great teacher in their lives. If you're called to teach, own that. Your example matters. Being a student matters when you're a teacher. Okay, last one. Number four, dads is for you. Mom's for you too, for all of us, really. And this is Hebrews chapter 12. And it's probably, in my mind, one of the most famous passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and it says this. It says, first, first, first is verse 14, first part says this. Work at living in peace 
with everyone. Now, there's several scriptures. Paul says this also in Romans 12, same exact idea. As far as it goes with you, live at peace with everyone. This is a Christian understanding of how to live. I should be at peace with everyone in my life. And if I'm not, I need to work at that. If I'm not at peace with you, if I'm, if I'm frustrated with you, I gotta work that out. I gotta find a way to live at peace with everyone in my life, no matter what they think or what they believe. This is a Christian calling. Be at peace with everyone. If they're not at peace with you, that's fine, but you're at peace with them. And then here's the this really important, really famous verse, New Living Translation, verse 15. It says this, watch out. This is a huge warning and you should take heed. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This is a really important thing because in relationships, this can easily happen. What happens is there's a, a phrase actually uh, from the first century which said this: "Bitter roots cause bitter root. Bitter root makes bitter fruit." I really messed that up. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I apologize about that. Bitter root makes bitter fruit. A bitter root is the idea that at, at the root of the matter, there's bitterness. Now, the English word for bitterness and the Greek word for bitterness used here are almost identical in what they mean. Here's what the English word means: bitter. The first definition of bitterness means it's about a taste in your mouth. It tastes bitter. It just doesn't taste good. It's not sweet. It's bitter. But the second definition of bitterness means this, a pervasive, understand it, think about it, a pervasive feeling of anger, hostility, or resentfulness. You know, oftentimes in my career as a pastor, I've been talking to someone and I've registered like you are upset with someone but you can move past it. You're having an issue with your wife or husband or son or daughter. You're upset with them, but you can move past it. And then I recognize, even year one as a pastor, I recognize there are levels of frustration which go so much deeper. The, 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 the good level, they would say things like this, like, yeah, my wife said this and I, I know her heart. I know she didn't mean it, but it really upset me and I don't know what to do about it. That's, that's level one. Level two is like this. My wife, oh, my wife. The way she walks, I can't stand it. People say this. The way she chews her food, oh, it just makes me so angry. She smacks her. And every time I hear that lower level, I'm like, oh, bitterness. That's bitterness. That's what that is. You're, you're not just upset with someone. You, you have allowed a bitter root. It's a pervasive feeling of anger, hostility, resentfulness. It, and it doesn't really go away. It's just you're, you're just bitter in the way that you think about another person in your life. If you know I'm talking about, just raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about? Bitterness, this, this deeper bitterness. Now, the, interestingly enough, the Hebrew, the, the Greek word that, that is used here, uh, the Greek word actually means, it doesn't mean pervasive anger. The deep word, the Greek word, same as the English word, begins with a bitter taste. Definition two, it says hatred. Deep hatred for a person. Hostility, anger, resentfulness. Now, this is what the, the verse is saying. Do not let. A poisonous root of bitterness affects your life. There's, this is a really important point because there is something you should probably know called the father wound. The father wound is how your father, specifically your father, has said or done things that have hurt you in a deep way in your life. And it's very likely that every one of us, me included, has some level of a father wound. And when you've been wounded by your father, it's very easy then, wounded by your father, that you might have some bitterness or you may have some frustration. And you have to understand that, that, that this Father's Day may be the perfect time to take a step away from bitterness and see some real healing come into this relationship. Here's number four. The cure for bitterness is forgiveness. Always, always, always the cure for bitterness is forgiveness. Now, I want you just for a second, everyone here, 
Whether he's alive or dead, think about your father, just for a second. When you think about your father, what is that emotion? You may have the initial emotion when you think about your dad, you you just have peace and love and and you're feeling great about it. You you don't need to forgive him. You don't need to forgive your dad. You're you're able to kind of let that go. But but if if your first thought when you think about your father is some some kind of frustration, some kind of anger, some kind of uh, undealt with something, you may need to really look into the idea, I need to, on this Father's Day, whether my father's alive or has passed away, I need to find a way to work towards forgiveness. And by the way, just look at me for a second. Some of you in this room also need to forgive yourself. Accept God's forgiveness and forgive yourself for mistakes you've made as a father or as a mother or as a stepfather or as a grandfather or whatever way it happened for you. You may need to forgive yourself to say, God, I need a fresh start going forward. If forgiveness is what you need, then you understand forgiveness means to let go. You may need to have someone help you, a counselor, a mentor, a pastor, to walk with you on the process of forgiveness. Or maybe for you, it's as simple as you write a list of all the things that have happened and you give it up to God and you say, God, here here it is. I forgive. I finally forgive my father for what he's done in my life. All right, we're coming to the end of this service and I have an idea. And I'm going to be honest with you. I love you. Saturday night, don't ruin my night. It's going great. I love you guys. You are at this moment a guinea guinea pig. I'm not going to lie to you about it. This is the idea that I have, and I'm going to try it out on you. If it works great, we're going to do it again tomorrow. If it fails here, I'm not going to do it again. Just being honest. Here's what I want to do. If you're a dad in this room, father or grandfather, and you have a child in this room, maybe your wife or whatever, I'm going to invite the dads to come forward and kneel at the altar. And what I'd like to do is see families pray for the dads. And when the families finish, the dad's going to stand up and pray over his family. So if you're here and your family is here, any member of your family is here, I'm inviting you dads. If you're, if you're willing to do it, just walk forward and have your family pray over you. And then when that prayer finishes, the dad's going to stand up and the dad's going to pray over his family. While it's happening, praise team, come on out, praise team. You're going to lead us in a song. It's going to be soft music initially. So we can have this prayer time. So I know, you're, I know dads are scared. Give it up, okay? Embrace your role as guinea pig. Okay, dads, stand up right now. Come on, stand up. Dad, stand up. Be braver, be braver. Walk forward. If you've got family in the room, just walk forward. Dads, come on. It's going to be powerful. If your dad's not here or you don't have any kids here, just pray as you would in this time. But dads, come forward. Families, come behind your dad. You're going to lay a hand on, on his shoulder, on his back, wherever you want. You're just going to pray for him. Pray, pray over your husband or you pray over your father. And then dads, you're going to pray over your family. And that time's it. And don't, um, come on up families. Come on up families. You're going to pray for dads. Pray for husbands. Just lay a hand on them. And just pray over them. Tell them how much you love them, how much you appreciate them. Just come pray over them. If your dad's not here or you don't want to do this, you can just stay in your seat, pray any way you want. You can pray for the dads that are up here. Thanks, thanks guys, for embracing your roles.